ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I'm thrilled today to have with me PJ Farrenkopf. PJ, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Yeah, of course, Tom. Good to see you. So could you tell us a little bit about your uh, academic and professional background? Sure. So I studied government, but was actually an accounting major for my first two years of school, but both of which really helped me in my role. But from a young age, I've always been really curious about globalization, the role of politics and government in the daily lives of folks and in private business, and then macroeconomics and geography. My my professional background getting into the energy industry, I went an unorthodox road route. I, I actually worked in professional politics for probably the first five or six years of my career straight out of college. I, I worked on close to a dozen political races. Then I went to work on a few nationally covered races and campaigns and, and senior, senior leadership positions in, in strategy and operations. And then I was appointed into the governor's office after governor-elect at the time, Charlie Baker, won the governorship of Massachusetts in 2014. I worked in his direct office for about a year and, and then was given the opportunity to go out into an agency. I thought energy and environmental affairs would probably be really helpful to me when I eventually decided to pivot into the private sector and now here I am. I'm going to have to ask you to come back for another podcast and explore all that because I did that <laughs> in uh, sure. grad yeah. school and law school. And I want to see what your experience was like, but I was really intrigued by your academic journey because although I certainly was not an accounting major, I was a history major, but I see the use of the social science component of what we call a government major to really give you a, a much broader base and a way to look at the macro picture in addition to the micro picture that you garner, as I perceive in accounting. Maybe we can yeah, save that for I mean, another I, one. I didn't last long. It was, <laughs> I thought for a while I, I may have wanted to work in banking or finance, but that, that hit me over the head really hard. And I was always, again, super interested in, in politics. So I said, let's just switch it over. What's your current role, PJ? Sure. So I'm the pretty much the head of, of global energy at a, at a company called Jable. I'm responsible for electricity consumption, energy contracts, and, and our carbon markets, as well as energy efficiency in our factories and, and on-site generation at our factories. We're a global Fortune 200, but we're like 105 on the Fortune 500 manufacturing services provider. And what do, let's start with a, your customer base at Jable. What do they rely on you guys for? Yeah, so we have around 400 customers and they're all leading brands that you would know and you deal with in your everyday life. They rely on us for end market expertise, technical design and capabilities, manufacturing know-how, supply chain insights, global product management expertise. One thing I hear a lot of folks say is by noontime, regardless of where you are in the world, you've, you've probably touched four products that were made in a Jable facility. So how is Jable committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions in line with the 
world scientific community standards? Yeah, so we we've already committed to a 25% carbon reduction target by 2025 and a 50% carbon reduction target by 2030, which we're well on our way to achieving. We've already signed a commitment letter to the science-based target initiative in line with the one and a half degree pathway. We've had two sustainability-linked financing vehicles, one of which includes a, a $500 million green bond, uh, which, which really helped prioritize and, and align strategy across the company and, and has really showed commitment to the space and commitment to our customers and, and shareholders. Could you maybe step back and explain to our audience or give us your definition of carbon neutrality? Carbon neutrality, I think, like a lot of things that are emerging or a lot of things at the beginning of their, what's the word I'm looking for? Early phases, there can be some gray area. When I look at carbon neutrality, I'm really focused on the things that we can control. So those are scope one emissions. Those are scope two emissions. When you get into the gray areas and what I see a lot of big corporates or, or a lot of nonprofits talking about full carbon neutrality is, is also scope three emissions. And for those unfamiliar, scope three emissions are, are more so emissions from upstream and downstream in your business. So things like employee commuting, right? So the amount of emissions that an employee emits on their drive to the office. Those are tough things to control. Also, reams of paper. They want to have a emission factor for every piece of paper that is used in, a, in an office. Those are really hard things to, to wrap your heads around and to control, right? So when I look at carbon neutrality, I'm thinking about what kind of electricity we use, how much natural gas we use, what kind of chlorofluorocarbons that we are using in some of our process equipment that may or may not be getting phased out as a part of the Montreal protocols. Carbon neutrality for me is really about squeezing the juice out of the lemon as much as you can from a control from a controlled environment. Uh, perhaps also I could ask you to uh, explain to our audience what scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions are, and then we can maybe take a little deeper dive into each. Yeah, absolutely. So, so scope one emissions come from mobile combustion. Primarily for an organization like Jabil, scope one emissions are sourced from things like natural gas or diesel fuel, gasoline that is either powering powering something or heating something. Scope two emissions where about 98% of our emission inventory comes from is primarily purchased electricity. And then, like I said, scope three emissions are upstream and downstream emissions, potentially outside of your control uh, that are found in the upstream and, and downstream portions of our business. So outside of our four walls. So you mentioned, and I love the phrase, I think I got right, which was control the things you can. And how does that sort of not, how does scope to give businesses the opportunity to do so as opposed to certainly scope three or maybe even scope one? Well, because we can choose how we procure our electricity and we can choose 
what kind of electricity we buy depending on what market we're in, right? Well, for me, j- j- just to, in, in, I, f- I find myself when I use this, some people are, they're wowed. Jable is a huge company. If Jable was its own country, there are 195 countries in the world. If Jable was its own country, we would be 113th in electricity usage. So we use more electrical power than almost 40% of countries. So if you want to talk about making an impact in the sustainability community or even the energy community, when you're moving your electricity resources and then your scope two emissions to a cleaner source, that's actually making a significant impact on, on a global scale. If a company came to you or a new customer perhaps and asked you for guidance or even counseling on reduction of scope two emissions, how would you uh, suggest they perhaps start that process? Yeah. The first thing is you need to have a really good depth of understanding of the energy markets, particularly where wherever you're doing business. The, the power markets are extremely disaggregated across different countries due to a lot of regulatory frameworks and different energy policies. Geopolitical tensions and, and international relations can also really impact the power markets, which you know, lead to limited interconnections and weird cooperations between different countries. Differences in electricity prices between countries are also influenced by those factors. They're, they're influenced by energy generation mixes between renewables and, and fossil fuels, uh, resources, market competition, things like that. I'd be happy to jump into perhaps talking a little bit about some various countries that have interesting regulatory frameworks that, that may differ from here in the United States. You bet. Give us some examples. Yeah. Mexico, for instance, they have a private wholesale electricity market called the MEM, which stands for Mexican Energy Market. (laughs) But it's really focused on helping industrial customers migrate from the old monopolized electricity regulation to a new regulation known as the qualified user, uh, which allows folks to select a supplier under a new law. Under a new law, the MEM Pricing, and, the, and this is what is interesting and, and what is really helpful to, to folks like us, is it's completely decoupled from CFE, which is the, the global, which is the full Mexican utility. And CFE tracks their prices really closely to CPI, which we've seen all over the place and very high for the last few years, which really exposes folks that aren't able to navigate those markets to extreme volatility. Uh, Europe is probably where the most risk is associated now, considering they've lost about 80% of their natural gas flow to the region because of the Russian conflict. Um, Some regions like Switzerland, for example, saw price hikes of about 600% last year. There's a lot of changing policies and the market volatility, but that they're going to keep seeing. But we're already seeing global competition arise because of the stringent policies that are in Europe, and and we may see some, we may see some hampering down of a lot of those policies because the the balance between actually achieving the carbon goals and and staying competitive can be really tough. 
one of the most complex markets would really be China because it's regulated in what's called a dual track market where electricity and carbon is sold according to a, a government allocated benchmark with levels set by the government but sold by locally operated market providers with with generally pretty low price caps and you can either buy from the government or, or you can buy from one of those market providers that fluctuates the price with a, a 20 percent swing but the government always dictates that price and and what's been really interesting over the last few years is we've seen the eac market which is the energy attribution credit market which kind of monitors and and, and tracks chinese electricity prices and sells the correlating green credits or green offsets with those prices that market is no longer receiving public investment from the chinese government and for the last decade china has subsidized heavily the wind and solar industry through lending and grants so the decoupling of the energy attribution credit market from the government incentive market is now driving up the costs of those associated credits while putting a huge strain on that government benchmark price because they now have to sell that renewable power at a market rate instead of at the government dictated rate and i think something really interesting about kind of the linkage between sustainability and the linkage between the energy markets is how that affects global prices because right around that time beijing put a, a ban on australian thermal uh, coal imports because of australia's insistence on the investigations of the origins of the pandemic which then put a huge strain on indonesia who's uh, a, another large coal exporter that now had to support china and bake that in with the largest natural gas exporter in the world russia no longer sending gas to europe we basically for the last two or three years have been left fighting over the ability to generate power and if you can't generate power you can't really comply with your sustainability goals and targets because you're going to need to generate power from a renewable source which is already skyrocketing because thermal power and carbon-based power has been slowing down so there, there's a lot of weird intricacies in the linkage between energy and, and sustainability because again 98 percent of our carbon emissions come from scope two which is purchased electricities I was going to suggest the role you play was a three-dimensional chess game, but after that answer, I may expand that to a five-dimensional chess game <laughs> with sure. lots of different moving parts, both horizontally and vertically. It's juggling. It's a juggling match. But if folks are really looking to set a strategy to meet climate targets, again, understanding your risk to make sure that you're not affected by geopolitical shocks like we just saw determining your energy needs behind the meter investments which is focusing on energy efficiency and things that you can control via operationally or, or cap capex investments and in, in machinery that use less electricity on-site generation where it's economically feasible things like solar and then really just have having a good understanding of the energy markets and the ability to find recs and, and credits that are in line with your goals and completely dependent on your industry. Let me see if I can translate that into compliance speak. Here's what Excuse I thought me. I heard. 
Let me see if I can translate that into compliance speak. Because here's what I thought I heard you say. Assess your risks, identify those risks, put together a risk management strategy, execute that strategy, monitor that strategy, and then improve, remediate, or upgrade as appropriate. That'd be a fair assessment of what I think. That's a super fair assessment. And that's the strategy that that we've followed. Do the people you talk to, do they understand that process where the key is to assess whatever your risks are and then to put a strategy together or put it in place to manage your risk and then monitor and tweak as appropriate? Yeah, we put together a climate action plan about four years ago. And the the basis of that plan is it's a a three pillar strategy based on reduce, produce, procure, reduce the amount of electricity that we use to manufacture our products via operational and energy efficiency, producing on-site power where it's necessary, and then procuring power on the open market in ways that both save us money and generate a, a carbon deficit. We changed the focus a little bit to the internet of things and supply chain management. Could you explain what that is for our audience? The internet of things and supply chain management. That's a tough one for me. Supply chain management is not really my wheelhouse. It's more, more clearly energy markets and sustainability. Okay. But then how about <laughs> the, I'm really in, Obviously, I'm intrigued by the strategy you've articulated, and sure. I'm intrigued by the the message because you're you're really evangelizing both to Jable customers, but a broader yep. audience as well. Is this message that you're giving, and I really love it, control the things you can, assess your risk, and manage your risk through your own risk management strategy, does that message resonate or does that scare people too much? Oh, no. Because I, I think when you're looking at a lot of this stuff, if, if you can really, if you can help folks understand that what we're doing is not a pure altruism move, it, it's actually a process optimization. It's um, a cost saving measure. There's, those are two fantastic things. And we, we just happen to be aligning with science-based target uh, carbon reduction as a part, but it's almost like the cherry on top because we're, we're fo- I'm, every day I'm focused on saving Jable money. I'm focused on finding value in the energy markets. I'm, I'm focused on figuring out uh, manufacturing processes that use less electricity. And if you're using less electricity, you're saving money. It just so happens that you're also saving carbon. Europe seems to be in many ways leading this discussion in their regulations and other commentary, certainly beyond what we've been able to see from the United States. Do you think that by leading as they have, Europe is going to set the standard that companies comply with, irregardless of what the SEC or some of these might eventually come up with? Yeah, I think they're they're always rolling out new stuff, which is interesting. A couple of days ago, I was doing some a deep dive into CBAM, which is the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is going to be on heavy users of scope one emissions. So things like nat- things like natural gas, he- heavy power industrials, making concrete, making asphalt, things like that. They're always finding a new way. The GOO market is probably, excuse me, guarantee of origin market. The gar- A guarantee of origin is a, is a, uh, a renewable energy certificate. That's what they call them. 
across the EU. But the GOO market is, is probably the most mature carbon trading market in the world. They've always been a leader in this. One of the, the things I've observed from the world I started with, which was anti-corruption compliance, is although regulators may set regulations and they may enforce regulations, it's really the businesses that make the change. And it strikes yeah. me that's what you're saying, is businesses are doing it. It may or may not be for altruism, but it's certainly for business savings and business efficiencies. Would that also be fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think for private business, based not to like keep hitting home on the message that I'm sending, but for, for but decarbonization makes total sense for us because we have the ability to do it. And in most cases, it improves our efficiency as well as saves money. One thing I like to talk about in my role a lot is Moore's Law, right? Things becoming cheaper and more efficient over time. And the same can be said for the renewables market. There's a, a lot of public and private investment in those markets right now. We have the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, which is injecting a lot of capital in the market for both components and, and generation. BJ, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask if our listeners wanted more information, where might be the best place for them to go? They can go to jable.com slash, slash sustainability. PJ, I greatly thank you. And as I said, I'm going to follow up maybe with some other pods with you on some of your other in your <laughs> career. But thanks so much for taking the time to visit with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the ESG Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. The ESG Report is a part of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a part of the network, please give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Hope you'll look forward to the next episode of the ESG Report.